Hey, Ben, just a reminder to all our listeners out there, if they would like to subscribe to Assemble.TV, you can use the code Cinepod to get one month free. Check it out. If you're getting ready to do a production, it is exactly like having a production binder that lives everywhere online and enables you to share stuff with all of your collaborators. They don't have to have an account. It's such a brilliant idea. Please go check out Assemble.TV and have a free month on us. And I'm also going to say, go watch our YouTube video about it, because I think our YouTube video really kind of breaks it all down. So uh, anyway, on with the show. This is Bob Yeoman, and you're listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya. Hey, Ben. How's it going? It couldn't possibly be any better than it is. Really? It's physically impossible. No, I'm lying. How are you doing? <laughs> Pretty good. I was like, well, the pandemic could be over. I mean, there's a... What is awesome and couldn't be better is who is on the show, who is... Uh, Robert Yeoman. Holy crap. Yeah. Robert Yeoman, somebody who... Uh, I'm a pretty big Wes Anderson fan, and he shot all of his live action features starting with Bottle Rocket. That's and, right. uh, and he has just an amazing career. You know, he, he's also done other stuff besides Wes Anderson. <laughs> when we get into uh, a lot of the stuff, we cover a lot of ground in this interview. It's a, it's a really good interview. I'm really glad it happened. Yeah, yeah. And I was excited just to kind of talk about, you know, because I'm sure Wes Anderson would say the same thing if he were on here. It's like Wes Anderson's aesthetic sort of evolved while working with Robert Yeoman. So to a degree, Robert Yeoman was kind of able to deconstruct where a lot of the things that we think about when we think about Wes Anderson, where those came from. And uh, it was, it's very exciting. But also exciting is our close focus for this week, which uh, there's just no way around it. We got to talk about the IATSE strike that wasn't. <laughs> well, it's not that it wasn't. It still might be. It's just not today as intended. So when you say it still might be, I mean, what does that mean? Well, and and this is something, this is a subtlety that is being ignored, I'd say, by the mainstream media, who I don't think has really engaged with the membership for the most part. They're really just following the press releases that that have been released saying, oh, strike averted. And, you know, uh, turns out that the union and as a former local 600 member, I hear a lot about this. And there was a lot of excitement from the membership because the union stepped forward and said, we are going to address working conditions. We are going to address hours. We're going to address weekends. We're going to address these things which have heretofore never really been addressed. And there's all kinds of things that you may have heard, like the fratter day, which is the, you know, the, you're supposed to have a weekend off perhaps if you're working five days, but no, in fact, because of the way the, the schedule has slipped, your weekend becomes like a Sunday and a half. It doesn't, it's not a mm. real day. And I, I actually looked this up. I, you know, a, a lot of union members are working 70 plus hour weeks. And so I, I went on to a website that had done some statistical analysis of occupations that work the most hours. And, and interesting, number one was farmer. Farmer works more hours than anything else out there by a long shot. And then I want to say that there was something like someone in the medical profession, I don't remember which it was, but there was a medical profession that was like number two that had a, a stupid amount of, of hours. And number three was entrepreneur, which had about the same number of hours 
has crew people who work in who work in the industry. A crew was not listed there, but 70 plus hour weeks, 75 hour weeks, not uncommon on a lot of productions. And it's been proven that there's no amount of overtime payment that is a deterrent for studios. So the way it works right now is that people work bad hours. They get paid a fair amount of money, but at the same time, there isn't uh, mandatory rest periods, or I should say rest periods that are sufficient before the crew has to return to work. And so the union said, we're going after this, we're going to go get this. And then what they returned was modest changes, including cost of living and a couple of other things that are improvements for the most part, but they didn't do anything really to address the hours. And so a lot of union members are feeling really cheated, really saying, yeah. like, you know, hey, we have to vote to ratify this. We're telling everyone we know not to vote, vote your conscience, read it. All the locals are going to do like sort of a breakdown to try to pitch it to their membership. And it's sort of an electoral college process of ratifying this uh, this contract. But the overwhelming reaction, I would say, you know, it was 99 percent of the membership who voted to authorize a strike that said, hey, we're willing to go do a strike. And then before they ever got to that point, they said, oh, a a deal has been reached. And there's some people who feel really cheated because uh, the things that they wanted, which were about quality of work, the number of hours that that you put in in a day, you know, the amount of, of, of rest time that you've got, those things weren't addressed. And in many other countries, particularly in Europe, uh, they've solved this. I mean, uh, now there's a lot of financial incentives not to do it on the part of the, uh, on the other side of the table because talent in particular and the number of days talent works is really a big cost driver. And if they have to have, you know, a Scarlett Johansson or whoever it is for extra days to get this done, that's a really big expense, much more expense than the crew. I know that it's probably true, or maybe it's what there's, what the AMPTP companies are saying, But to a degree, I'm going to call bullshit, because if you hire Scarlett Johansson to be in your movie, she's going to get a payday on your movie. And I'm making up a number. I have no idea what Scarlett Johansson's quote is, but let's pretend it's It's $10 million, right? Just making up a number. For that $10 million, you kind of get Scarlett Johansson whenever she's available and you need her. Like, you know, if she's in the middle of doing a revival of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on Broadway, you might have to hop, skip and jump around that schedule. But it's not like it's not like you have to it's scale actors that you have to pay out day by day. Well, well, not necessarily. If you want uh, Morgan Freeman for six days, that might cost you a lot of money. If you want, you know, certain talent, you know, who are only coming in to do part of that movie, that those are some some pretty big paydays. But regardless, yeah. we know that the studios can't afford this. We know that 100 percent it can be done this way. And it has been done in, in many places. But. There's I will tell you how much vitriol and anger there is right now at the union. Uh, There's certain union members who have taken to posting the president of the union's salary online, which he makes four hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. And uh, there's they're making comments that he hasn't worked a day as as crew in like thirty five years or something like that. Some some crazy amount Mm. of time. So there's a a lot of people saying like, you know, the current leadership of IA doesn't uh, understand or relate truly to the membership they're relating to like Stockholm syndrome that, you know, it's a really, it's a really uh, dysfunctional situation. And everyone who works in the industry is in some ways, it seems like uh, not adversarial to each other. They really like, Hey, you know, we're reliant on you in order for us to, you know, to keep making what we're doing. And when you work on crew, your best friend might be the person who's responsible for making sure that you have a six figure salary year because you're friends with them and they call you up and say, Hey, I want to do this. There is this, like, there's a lot of not wanting to rock the boat. And I can certainly understand that the IA doesn't want to rock the boat. 
and look, I'm a former member. I'm not a member anymore, but I hear from, from other people out there who are crestfallen is not the right word. They're, they're pissed. They're, they're pissed that, that this yeah. is, uh, has gone this way. And but what, they, can you say what they did get? What did they get in the agreement? You know, here's the thing. They're, they're actually saying the union is saying, you know, here's our list right now. And don't jump to any conclusions because we're really going to break it down and explain it to you like your local is going to break it down and explain it to you. But I can I can look it up for you here and I can I can read it. Um, I know one of the things is a cost of living increase of three percent a year, three percent per year. The president of IA, his contract has five percent per year. And so there was definitely when people were reading that they were like, wait, the, the president gets five percent, but we all get three percent. That doesn't seem right. And this is only for three years. And then this whole contract will probably have to be negotiated again. But um, I mean, how often do they get to elect the president? Uh, that's that's the thing. There's some people talking about like reform from within or looking for alternatives, finding another uh, union that's associated with the AFL CIO. But I mean, it's a uh, it's um, here. Let me let me see if I can pull this up here. Yes, they call it the tentative agreement. And it says achievement of a living wage for the lowest paid earners. The lowest paid earners uh, are, are very low. And so what that actually means, I'm not sure they don't actually say what that is, but depending on the contract you're working under, it, it might not be much more than Starbucks. So um, mm-hmm. retroactive wage increase of 3% annually, uh, an increased meal period penalty. So that's money, not necessarily a longer meal period, uh, daily rest periods of 10 hours uh, without exclusions. So 10 hours, you, you give up, uh, you know, if there's 24 hours in a day and you work 14 of them, you, they can't call you back with less than 10 hours. And let me tell you, after working 14, 14 hours day in and day out, 10 hours does not feel like, like very much time off, you know, forget no, that eight hours, 10 on hours it. is like, you know, get you getting home, going to sleep, waking up and coming back. And you feel like you never left. Yeah. Now this part, I, I take a little exception with, it says weekend rest periods of 54 hours. That, that doesn't appear to be true because the original release that went out said 32 to 54 hours. And that doesn't make much sense to me. How is it 32 to 54? I had heard that some locals had maybe slightly different rest period. I'm not sure. But then the only other things that they list is that they got Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday as a holiday added to the schedule. And then an adoption of diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives, which doesn't go to the big thrust of what the union membership really wanted and really was uh, hoping for, which supposedly if it is voted down and it'll have to be overwhelmingly voted down, but but if assuming it is voted down, then the union gets to go back and they get to say, Hey, we've changed our demands. The membership said no. So here's, here's what we're going for. And I expect that that will happen unless it's, it's sold very well to the membership, but I expect that will happen. And if they reach an impasse, uh, it's possible to bring in federal mediators. Federal mediators would probably take a look at this. And, you know, there's no legal limits that prevent uh, people from working hours in, in, in a week. But when you look at what uh, when you look at the hours that they are working compared to the hierarchy of number of hours that people work, there's very few people who are covered by collective bargaining who, who are working this number of hours right now. Even like when you look at people like longshoremen who have long days, they've got like a four hour rest period in the middle of their day. So it's like, yeah, you know, they don't do that with with making movies. <laughs> so it's potentially uh, it's potentially something that could go on. I know that there's a lot of people who don't want to rock the boat. And certainly when you're working at the highest echelons, 
not to say you don't have long days, but the type of work that you do is a bit different than the guys who are really, really doing a lot of heavy lifting and the crew that's got really extreme amounts of uh, fine detail work and stuff like makeup artists and hair and stuff who start their days incredible. Like there is a tremendous amount of strain on the body and also unpredictability if you never know what time your day is going to start or where it's going to end. You know, the the glamorous life of showbiz. I mean, this is (laughs) this is this is what What in quit showbiz. My my elephant joke comes back. That's right. Uh, so anyway, so that, that's kind of where, that's where it's at. So tentative agreement, yes. Is it actually the final ratified agreement? The, from what I hear right now and the number of like likes I see on social media posts, and you can certainly go to the, uh, the, the IA Stories Twitter account and uh, Instagram account and see like some of, the, some of what's being said, and it, it's a not a happy group of people. They're, they're very unhappy about this. Well, that's that's interesting. I I honestly was expecting a a different response from you about it, but uh, I definitely know that I'm getting a a boots on the ground view from you and the people that you know and the people you work with. So, yeah, uh, and you know it's interesting because I saw like you know ABC did a story and I heard a little blurb on the radio and it sounded exactly like they read the the IA press release, but didn't do even the most rudimentary sort of research for well, they for just, this sort of thing. I mean, I, I think at the at the bottom of it is a wishful thinking that people don't, you know, just as the economy is starting to come back, we don't want to have a big strike that's going to cripple the entertainment industry. We don't want that in our industry. But that's exactly why you have to be willing to threaten the AMPTP. Years ago, when I was doing a lot of journalism, I wrote an article for creative screenwriting that was about the Writers Guild strike in 1988. And I got to interview a bunch of the people who were involved at the time, including, I believe, the council for the AMPTP. And uh, my takeaway was kind of they're they're very take no prisoners, man. They are cutthroat. They are making a lot of money. They're always going to make more money than everyone. I feel like we all understand that, you know, like a grip isn't going to be making the same kind of money that Universal Studios makes or that Netflix makes. But it really does require collective bargaining to kind of and and really being willing to say, OK, even in, in a bad economic year where all these people need to work it's still no good to be exploiting people the way you are, you know? Yeah. And you know, I kind of feel like if the membership even halfway thought that this was acceptable, you wouldn't start seeing the posts about, you know, president of the IA, Matthew Loeb's, you know, backstory, his work history and his salaries. Like, you know, I think that they, that just put it into really sharp reflection that, you know, when, when they're doing that, that's not because that they, they're grumbling and they're going to accept this. This is like, they're, they're angry and they're angry at the leadership. So Mm. we'll see. Well, we'll see. And with that, I think we should go on to the interview with Bob Yeoman. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So I'm here transcontinentally, as we have been so many times, with uh, Bob Yeoman, who uh, our listeners are going to know because he has shot the majority, if not all, of Wes Anderson's live action movies, but also some amazing other movies, including the more recent Ghostbusters, uh, Midnight Cowboy, Dead Heat, big favorite of mine when I was a kid. But uh, thank you so much for coming on. I know you're working on a movie in Spain right now, correct? That is correct, yes. I'm in Spain, uh, a town called Chinchon, which is uh, about an hour outside of Madrid. Oh, uh, by the way, I said Midnight Cowboy. I meant Drugstore Cowboy. I was going to say something. I was going to say something. But I was going to wait and do it later. You want me to I don't want to take credit for Midnight Cowboy. Yeah, Midnight <laughs> Cowboy is a classic. But no, Drugstore Cowboy, Gus Van Sant's Amazing Drugstore Cowboy. Sorry, I got flustered. 
So uh, thank you so much for coming on. Your newest movie, which is, uh, this episode will probably be dropping around the time it comes out, is The French Dispatch, uh, the newest Wes Anderson movie. Just uh, amazing, amazing work. I, I feel like we could spend hours just talking about your collaborations with Wes Anderson and kind of, I would say, a one-of-a-kind creation of a, of a visual signature. The, the movies that the two of you have made together, you can look at one frame of them and know who made them. Uh, which is just an amazing thing that the two of you can cr- have created. Can you talk a little bit about specifically about the French Dispatch because it has a mixture of aspect ratios. It it mixes black and white in color. It's got. I, I feel like it's a, an amalgam in a way of, of like all the styles the two of you have have worked on together and and a bunch of new stuff. Can you talk about sort of where that all comes from with you two guys? Well, it started when we met really uh, back before Bottle Rocket. I found that. Wes and I really had a similar aesthetic. And Mm. when I first met him, we talked about movies that inspired us, the cinematography in particular. And we seemed to always agree on the same things. And, you know, when we come to a set, we often kind of gravitate to the same place. There's always a question of where to put the camera. And so we have, we're very simpatico that way. And, And of course, as I've worked with Wes all these years, I kind of can anticipate what he is going to want to see and how he wants to shoot things. And um, so there's that cumulative effect of being together for, I don't know how many years we've been together, 25 years, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, a give and take creative process. And when we started the French Dispatch, there were three main stories. There's actually several stories in the film. And uh, originally we were going to shoot just one of them in black and white. And it was the first one with Benicio Del Toro. And uh, during prep, we do a lot of testing and we shoot a lot of things in locations and natural light and just get ideas. And we shoot with film, motion picture, everything's in film. Mm. And uh, during the course of this testing, we both just fell in love with the black and white stock. It just, you know, we shoot things in color in black and white. So Wes decided to shoot a lot more of the film in black and white than originally planned. the mixing of aspect ratios uh, was his idea originally on uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel. And yeah. I remember him telling me that. And I, I have to be honest, I was a little bit skeptical of it. I, I wasn't sure how it was going to work. And uh, we mixed, you know, three aspect ratios. And I, I just thought, it's kind of weird. I'm not sure. But we <laughs> tested it. We tested it again. And uh, I saw that it was going to work. And it was going to work great. And so... That's something that he does to delineate different time periods, to delineate different stories. And, and with, sometimes we even go from one aspect ratio to another within the same story now. You know, we go from black and white to color sometimes within the same story. And it's, I think it's more for him an emotional uh, decision, you know. And for instance, if you've seen the film, there's, you know, the, the first one with Benicio is all black and white. It's one three seven, the old aspect ratio. And then when Benicio first presents his paintings, we wanted to make a very strong visual statement. So we shot anamorphic lenses, widescreen color. So mm. when you first see the art, you know, it's bang, you know, and it's a whole, so you're, as, as a viewer, I think you're kind of like, whoa, you know, and, and uh, so that was, I think, behind that decision. And, and, you know, a lot of his decisions is what obviously serves the story and, and visually will tell the story the best. And, and so, you know, that's where the aspect thing came from. And, and, you know, the symmetry, everyone asks me about that all the time. I mean, that's something we both 
we're both Kubrick fans and we both have always been drawn to that style. And, you know, uh, it's even when I take, I do a lot of still photography and it's funny, I just kind of gravitate to that type of thing <laughs> with myself. So, you know, we kind of, it's not like we're ever, you know, I, I think it should be over here. It should be over here. You know, we're, we're pretty much in sync on things, you know, so. Well, it's interesting you bring up Kubrick with the symmetry stuff, because I feel like Kubrick uses symmetry for like intense intensity. And your films have a sense of humor, a sense of whimsy or a sense of a sense of heightened. I don't even know what to put it. There's there's like a storybook feeling to the work that the two of you do together. And it's a completely different vibe than from the way a Kubrick symmetrical thing would would be framed. I think. I, I, I was going to say, I think all of Wes's movies, maybe I'm wrong. They're kind of comedies to me. There's a lot yeah. of comic elements to them. And uh, I think he's just drawn to the symmetrical frame. And, and it's, it's something like when we come into a room, when we bring the camera in, I always have my camera assistants tape out exactly where the center is, you know? So, cause <laughs> one of the first, one of the first questions he'll ask when he comes in, you know, I usually try to get there a little before he does in the morning is uh are we centered you know that's one of the first things he'll say and and, hmm. and so i can always say yeah we're centered and then maybe we change a little bit from here or there but it's always kind of part of his aesthetic and i mean every director has his own aesthetic and has a different idea about things but you know that's something we always start with is symmetry and, and, and then sometimes we change it up a little bit but that's always the starting point anyway you know and, and then we take it from there you know I think this actually leads us really well to uh, one of our listener questions. Uh, one of our listeners on Instagram uh, asked a question. His name is Malachi T. And he said, in addition to color palettes being a major focus, how are textures and of materials discussed? Things like paper, clo- uh, clothing materials down to the fibers. Is that discussed? Is that something that naturally occurs? Or is that something that is decided with the props and costume department? Where does that become a discussion with the camera department? Uh, well, we test everything, not everything, but we test a lot of things, particularly say on Grand Budapest Hotel is a perfect mm-hmm. example. We weren't quite sure the color of the walls and the color of the jackets that the staff at the hotel would be wearing. So uh, Adam Stockhausen, our production designer, had painted these flats, different shades of that pinkish color. Oh, wow. And and, uh, and then Milena Caminero, our, our costume supervisor, would have different shades of the, the jackets that the guys would wear. And I would try to replicate the lighting as it was going to be in the movie. And so we could see just what worked the best. And, and Wes is very involved in all those all those decisions. I mean, to the smallest type on the invitation that you barely see, you know, in the background. I mean, he yeah. he's very, you know, he concentrates on everything and, and he's so involved in all that art direction, props, uh, the choice of textures, the choice of colors, how high the people's pants are, <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> it's like uh, he controls all, he's, you know, he's very, fashion conscious, obviously, and, uh, and, and hair haircuts. I mean, how long the person's beard is, you know, he wants to see it all beforehand and make his changes. And so uh, that's the prep period is a very extended prep period often. And, and they'll bring this stuff. And if we can test it on film, we do. We often do. But it's not always possible. So they'll bring certain props to him. And he has to pretty much okay everything. You know, and, and if I'm there, I put my two cents worth in. Mm-hmm. He's pretty he's pretty on top of all aspects of the film, for sure. You know, no question. That's really cool to hear. 
when I watch the films that the two of you have worked on, something that jumps out at me uh, in so many of the films, there, there's a couple of style nods, and the French Dispatch has several of these, where you have sort of a lateral dolly shot that's like showing you an entire world of people, but it's kind of doing it all in one very brilliantly choreographed shot. And in the French Dispatch, you also did something that I've never seen you do before, which is kind of these frozen tableaus, too, where people are, it looks like they're just holding really still. It doesn't look like it's a visual effect or anything. It's just kind of a theatrical thing. Can you talk about, like, where the idea to do those came from? And, you know, like, what goes into the construction of one of those? Because, obviously, when we watch them, they look effortless, but it's like there's always, like, somebody cooking and there's steam coming out of the oven at exactly the right point or whatever. There's, like, everything is so calculated and perfect in those sequences. Yeah, you know, I I don't know the answer to that particular scene, but what happens is on every movie, Wes has a library of DVDs, Blu-rays, books, visual references, you know, photo books, and, and it's open to cast and crew to come and borrow these. It's a library, you sign it out and you're supposed to return it, of course. And, uh, <laughs> you have a and, scanner and, like a barcode. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I hope he gets them all back, but uh, this, is, this has been going on for quite some time. And uh, so these are all references. And, and for instance, on the French Dispatch, obviously French movies were, were a big influence on us. And I saw, you know, Diabolique, uh, Via Sabi, uh, The Fire Within, you know, a lot of French movies. Many of them I'd seen, many of them I hadn't seen. And, and it just kind of affected me in the way that, because most of them were shot in 137 back then, the older ones, you know, how they frame things, how they lit things. And so it gives Wes and I a shorthand uh, on the set, you know, and, and I can reference certain things, certain shots. And I, I'll see certain things in a movie and I'll bring it up. I'll say, oh, is this like blah, blah, blah? And he'll say, yeah, yeah. You know, and so we use that as a reference and kind of a, a common ground to start from. And, and mm-hmm. it's just so I bring that to the movie and, and that particular thing, uh, uh, situation, I don't know what really inspired him for that, but. It was a very difficult shot and, and everybody was frozen, like you said, and they, yeah. they hung they hung everything from the ceiling. And um, it was particularly tricky for me because Wes is very big on, on having a lot of depth of field. He wants everything in focus. So that requires a lot of light. And because we shoot a slow film, I had to bring a lot of light into that situation. And, and uh, it was a little tricky because he had people very close to camera that he wanted and focus people very far away in camera. And, and yeah. so it, it becomes tricky to, bring out that huge amount of light in and make it look real and look realistic. And, um, and interestingly enough, they, they painted the backdrop on that. It was black and white and uh, it, it was supposed to be the interior of, of the prison uh, where Benicio was painting. We call it the hobby room. And mm-hmm. uh, when you look at it on the black and white film, it almost looks real in some ways. You know, I was very, <laughs> I was surprised how realistic it looked on the film, you know, because unless you're paying attention to it, you might assume it was in the actual location. So when it was interesting, too, because like moments like that in film kind of force you to go like, is that is that an effect? Is that like I, I don't know what someone who isn't like steeped in this stuff like Ilya and I are would think when they when they would look at a shot like that. But, you know, like I'm looking to see like is someone's hand moving a little bit or someone's head just teetering slightly or is that done? You know, are you doing some kind of matrix style bullet time or like how, how are you pulling it off? It and was all live. It's so crazy. Yeah, it, it was all live. And the actors were just had to hold still, 
you know, and they had like the tray with the drinks coming off, know. you know, and the drink was glued to the tray and the thing coming off was, you know, it was all part of a plastic so thing cool. that they made. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, and Wes doesn't, something like that, I mean, we, he doesn't, I won't say he doesn't care what it costs. He does care a lot about what things cost, but he knows there may be a, diff, a different way of doing it, but he wants to do it that way because it gives a certain quality to things. And, and uh, sometimes you do the way that is best that fits the movie. And if that could be often more difficult, then it's more difficult, you know, and we just deal with it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because when you do something like that, and you, and you do it for real, it has more of a tactile, you, you can feel it almost like his animated features where there's something tactile in it and you can feel the texture of it. You can feel the work sort of that went into pulling off this interesting effect as opposed to not that there's anything wrong with having, if people did it digitally, but finding a non-digital way to do it to me is, uh, it brings a different vibe to it, which I think is, you know, sort of what you're saying. As far as like just the construction of the giant lateral dolly sequences that you guys do together, though, can you talk about building those? Because those seem like unbelievably complex and they're all wonders. Yeah. You know, occasionally there's a hidden cut in those. But yeah, uh, they are wonders. They're designed to be wonders. And our key grip, Sanjay Sammy, has this uh, device called the Mangalore. So if I have a track that goes across this way, you know, this way, then he has another track that goes this way, because many times you have to go straight in. You have to track in and then go straight in, you know, and then mm. back out and track. And, you know, people say, why don't you use a steady cam? Well, it wouldn't work because, first of all, the tracks are so fast. And second of all, it's so specific. I mean, even the best steady cam operator in the world would never be able to hit those things. So yeah. um, we we put the Mangalore in and Sanjay pushes the dolly down and then they switch tracks and he goes in and he goes out and then we do go back on the old track. It's tricky. It's tricky lighting those. And, um, you know, they, they're all designed to be one shot. And many times they are. Occasionally there's a hidden cut in there because we're coming across things that they can hide a cut in. But typically it's the whole idea is to do it in one shot. They're tricky and they're fast, and uh, sometimes it requires operating, you know, swish mm -hmm. pans and things, and it's uh, and you have to have very specific works when you're doing that, and um, it it can be very tricky. But you know, we get in the rhythm of it, and you know, we may not we may not hit the first time, but after a while, we can pretty much do it, and you know, you get into the rhythm of how it's going to go, and you get a rhythm where the actors are going to move. And, and Wes has been doing this thing the last few movies. He, he makes an animatic before we start shooting, which is kind of like a little cartoon. Of the whole and, movie? Of the whole movie, yeah. Wow. Uh, anybody on the film can watch it. And it, he does all the voices of the characters, which is uh, really hilarious. Because, oh, my God. I want to see that. <laughs> uh, oh, my God. They are so funny. They are so funny. And he does everybody's voice. And he has little different intonations for each person, you know, each actor. But the, the problem with the animatics is the actors, like getting out of a car and going up steps, they can do it in like one second in an animatic. They get out of the car and they go up the steps. But then real life, of course, you know, it takes them like five times longer to do that. So that's yeah. always an issue. And, and some of our big, long dollies, I mean, the actors were walking so fast and, and going in and out of doors and doing things so quickly in the animatic that in real life, we just can't do that. So, you know, we have to kind of change a little bit or he accepts the fact that reality, you know, says you can't do it this quickly as the animatic. But we, we try to, I don't know, imitate the right word, but we try to shoot the animatic as best we can, knowing that there are certain limitations the reality 
gives us that, you know, animation doesn't, you know, so. I'm glad you bring up the animatics because I, one of those people who own a, a Rushmore Criterion DVD, which lists, which shows actually a bunch of uh, the early storyboards from from Rushmore on there. And I was going to ask you if that's pretty much the storyboard experience, because I got to say that Wes Anderson is going to make anyone else who's scratching out storyboards really quickly on like the back of a napkin feel really good. And when you see the the comparison that they do in this DVD, they show, you know, the the final shot and then they show the storyboard. And there's a huge translation difference between what was originally scrawled out and and then what you guys created together. Uh, the animatics sound like just taking that to the next level. I, I guess I wanted to ask you, though, is how do you take those storyboards and do you still ever get those storyboards? But do, do you get I mean, really, they're very, very crude, sort of like, hey, the teacher's here. Hey, the student is here. Hey, there's sort of a square. And what actually ends up happening, though, is a very elaborate dolly move with a with a reverse with something else that comes into it. How, how does you know, two scratches, two squares of, of, you know, Sharpie on a piece of paper become what you end up with? Well, that's the the earlier movies were all done that way. Wes would do his own storyboards, and if you've seen them, he has this very distinct style of drawing. And uh, I think they gave us a rough idea what things were. But when we started on, the, I, I think that when Wes started doing uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox and working in animation, it changed the way he looks at movies a great deal now. And that's right after that was when the animatics started coming and. Uh, he plots the whole thing out kind of, you know, he has a guy who does those for him and he tells him what to do, obviously, you know, so now I get a script and I get an animatic and in many ways, the animatic is more useful to me than the script is because I can see what the idea is. And so Adam Stockhausen, our, our production designer can build around these animatics and it's amazing. They built a town in the desert here. You know, I shouldn't be saying this, but and, and it's, it's amazing how closely it resembles the animatic. I mean, you know, and they even plotted out the spatial relationships and things, you know, because with the dolly moves that you're describing, they have to ha happen in a certain amount of time, you know. So for me, it's kind of the Bible and for most people. And we can see what the general idea is and they have where, where the buildings are, where certain objects are, where the characters are. And uh, I have to say, you know, we pretty much do what's in that animatic. I think when he did animation with Fantastic Mr. Fox, he, he learned, you know, how to use those types of things and, and create worlds that in the old days we made in reality. And now we, we might put a miniature in the background or, you know, they do something else, you know. So there's a little bit more going on in post than I think there once mm. was. Well, and, uh, you know, speaking of the Fantastic Mr. Fox, I'm not going to spoil the, the plot points, but there's a great deal of animation. There's one specific sequence in the French Dispatch that's all animated. Was that always designed to be animated? Was there ever a discussion of shooting that? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it was, without spoiling it, you know, the, the dangerousness of the whole thing. You know, that it's a car chase and people going yeah. from car to car. And, and I think Wes realized that to shoot that was going to be, you know, pretty ambitious and, uh, you know, I think he really enjoys the animation. And and so the the whole idea, right when I said to him, how are we going to do that? I mean, even when we did the a ski chase scene in Grand Budapest, I mean, sort of some of that was done with Rafe and Tony on the sled and, you know, we're blowing snow in their faces and, you know, we, you know, we, we shook the camera. And so it, there's a lot of snow blowing. And so you can see the actors. 
with all those wide shots were, you know, done with miniatures and animation. And because I said, what are we going to do? Are we going to go to Switzerland and shoot in the Alps or something? And he was like, you know, no, we're not doing that. So I think right away he knew that that was going to be done in that style. And, and I think with the French Dispatch as well, that one uh, sequence you brought up, it was right all, all along it was going to be just done that way. And, he, he loves mixing the styles and, you know, um, and, and I thought it adds a whole kind of humor to the movie in a way. You know, I, I really like that part of it. So, uh, no, I, I enjoyed it. I was just when I was watching it, I was curious if there was ever a discussion of doing it in live action. I don't feel like it suffers at all for being done the way that he did it. And I feel like it's what I what I love about uh, Wes Anderson's movies. And I know we're here to talk about your work, but like one of the things I love about it is if you go back and watch even the original Bottle Rocket short that he made you can see that like his cinematic voice was kind of there all along but then he keeps getting new pieces so like from fantastic mr fox or isle of dogs now we have animation as part of the language that goes into his live action films and it it's almost intentionally not seamless it's not like it it's bringing a new voice or a new texture to something that's already so rich and textural to begin with so yeah um, i think it, it adds an element uh that say we had shot it live action with stunts and everything it's part it kind of to me i i like the animated part of it it gave kind of a it's kind of humorous to me watching it well you know because yeah. it's fantastic what happens in that sequence and to replicate that you know in reality would not only take a huge amount of time and everything but it might not be as funny as it is in animation you know and and so you know i think it was a decision he made right away that not only from a practical standpoint, but also from a creative standpoint, it was a better call to do it that way. So, you know, um, I think that's that's how it was came about. Uh, I genuinely loved it. And it was like all I could think about for days after I saw it. So um, I kind of wanted to go back if we could, which brings me to the movie I misnamed at the beginning. Drugstore, not Midnight Cowboy. Drugstore, not to be confused with Midnight Cowboy. Uh, Gus Van Sant, who is also, in my understanding, a pretty experimental director and tries out different stuff. And Drugstore Cowboy is, is such a gritty and raw film. What is it as a cinematographer that you can do on a project like that to kind of allow the actors to have the room to do the amazing work that was done in a movie like that? Well, we did block things out and uh, it was very, it was pretty loose in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Not unlike a film I did years later, The Squid and the Whale with Noah Baumbach. Oh yeah, you know, oh, I was going to get there. But similar in that it was not as specific, say, as a Wes Anderson movie where everything is so carefully controlled. So the actors had a fair amount of, you know, being able to move around and we would react to them. You know, mm -hmm. uh, we were on a dolly oftentimes and we could clear them or do what we needed to do. So there was a certain amount of uh, freedom in that sense. But, you know, Gus had done Malanoche before, which was this very lower budget movie that he made which was excellent uh about a gay hustler in portland and what happened was the guys had shot that film for him were his buddies and when he got the money to do drugstore cowboy the uh, avenue pictures and the producers were like well your, your friends haven't done a movie like this so we need to bring someone in and he said well i don't know anybody and so the, i had just done a, a talking heads music video with one of the producers and um 
Oh, which one? Which one? It, it, it well, I did part of Road to Nowhere. Um, oh, wow. David Byrne. So uh, she said, well, I just worked with this guy in LA. And so they flew me to Portland and I went up and met Gus and we hit it off. And, and the thing about Gus is he's one of those directors who he sits back and you kind of feel like, I talked to Matt Dillon about this. You kind of feel like you can do whatever you want. But in a sense, he's still kind of controlling the whole movie, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so I always felt like, oh, I can kind of do, light it the way I want, do what I want, you know? But at the same time, he's back there, the puppet master, pulling all the strings, you know? And he's obviously a very talented director, and I loved working with him. And um, But he always, he wasn't used to working with a, a quote, crew, you know? He was work, used to working with a very small group of people, and... I had a more traditional way. I brought my camera assistants and grips and my gaffer. And so we were a little bit more of a traditional way of working than he was used to. And, uh, uh, you know, I think a little bit that frustrated him a little bit, but maybe not. Maybe I'm Interesting. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we got along great. It was great working with him and, and it was a nice group of people. And I worked with Matt since then. And, and we talk about Gus and, and our experiences doing that film. And I think anybody who worked on it, you know, will say, you know, it was a special kind of uh, experience for all of us. And uh, it got a much better response than I had anticipated due to the nature of the material being drug yeah. addicts. And uh, it was during the Reagan times and, but uh, people, particularly in the film community, love that film. You know, it, it was a special film, and it, it turned out even better than I thought. But Gus always wanted to push towards the experimental and, you know, some of those dream, dream-like sequences were things that he yeah. cooked up. And uh, some of them we even shot later in the editing room. You know, we needed inserts. So the uh, editor would come down to where we needed them and, oh, you got a green shirt on, just stand there. And that was the wall, you know, and it was, it was done very <laughs> literally, you know, on the fly, you know, but. Uh, oh, wow. And, and like the bubbles when Bob was, you know, looking and, and we, we got an aquarium, and we just blew some bubbles in it. And you had Matt Dillon like leaning in and there's all these bubbles blowing in front of him. And that was just a little aquarium we had that we did. That's so it was cool. cool. It's all done very cheaply, you know, and, and just, but Gus had come up that way. He went to RISD and he was a very, uh, you know, more of an experimental filmmaker. You know, he, he always loved to play around with those types of little things to, to do our film. But, you know, at the same time, we we're telling the story and he put a lot of that stuff in as he went along, which I think really added to the, the feeling of Bob's experience in the drug world you know so like when you're working on a film like that like you know you said that there was kind of a special feeling around it i mean like was when you were making it did it feel like we're making a film that's going to like really have a big impact because that sort of was i mean that was certainly gus van sant's biggest breakout at at, uh, up till that point but it was kind of a a very buzzworthy movie that year and it's a movie uh we still talk about even if i get the name wrong you know i didn't feel that way I mean, another example is years later, I did Bridesmaids, and when we were making that film, I had no idea. I just thought, oh, this will be okay, you know, uh, and it became this huge hit, and and, and, and obviously very different movies, yeah. but uh, when we did Drugstore Cowboy, I thought, oh, well, you know, I, I always loved, from the moment I read the script, I loved it, I, and mm-hmm. I, I thought, what a great script, uh, but I never thought it would be kind of embraced by Hollywood as it was. And, and many, it kind of opened a lot of doors for me. I mean, even with Wes, 
the reason I met Wes was because Wes was a huge and Owen Wilson were big drugstore cowboy fans. And that, mm. that was, that was uh, kind of, they said, Oh, let's get the guy who shot that, you know? And, and so it opened a lot of doors for me career wise that I probably wouldn't have opened because of before that. So. Well, and, and you bring up uh, Bridesmaids, and to me, it's like, as I look at your career, and probably what you're known for best nowadays are your many collaborations with Wes Anderson, but you've also done movies like Bridesmaids or the new Ghostbusters, movies that, that have an improvisational quality to them. And uh, it reminds me a little bit of when we talked to Roberto Schaefer, who'd worked with Mark Forster a bunch, and everything was like very specific and contained, and then he'd also did like a bunch of Christopher Guest movies where it was like anything goes. And I was kind of wondering how that dichotomy works for you working so closely with Wes Anderson, where everything feels almost like portrait photography. It's so specific. And then going on to something like Bridesmaids, where where I'm assuming, you know, you have to create an atmosphere where if Melissa McCarthy decides to run 40 feet to the left, she can she can do it if she has that instinct or or, you know, if the director asks for it. What's the dichotomy working in there in, in your own head? Well, the first movie I, I did in that style was Get Him to the Greek. Uh, Nick Stoller directed it. It was Jonah Hill uh, and Russell Brand. And uh, when I got hired, the first thing they told me was they cross shoot everything. So with Wes, everything's always one camera. This is what the shot is. And with those movies, Bridesmaids, Get Him to the Greek, Ghostbusters, everything is cross shot. So if, if you and I are sitting at a table having a conversation, there's a camera on me and a camera on you. And, and that is because so much is improv and you can't recreate that. Mm-hmm. And so that was a challenge right away. It's like, oh, shit. You know, as a cinematographer, that's like death, you know, and you could to light two directions at once and make it look good. But, you know, so you accept that challenge and you realize that you're servicing the, the material and the actors really heavily in that situation. So, you know, visually, it's not going to be a Wes Anderson movie or a drugstore cowboy, yeah. you know. I looked at it upon it as a challenge to be able to do that because uh, we should cross shoot everything. And, and uh, you know, it's just sometimes as a cinematographer, you can feel like, oh, well, I could have done a better job if we don't use one camera, you know. But, you know, that's the way if you go into that style, that's what you take. And, but it also gives the actors a lot more freedom and and uh, with Paul Feig, who directed all those movies, uh, except Get Him to the Greek, he comes from comedy. A lot of them do improvs. And, and when you watch someone like Russell Brand or Kristen Wiig or Melissa McCarthy or whoever, and you watch them work, you, you can see that they 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 want that freedom to li- to do what they can do in order to create whatever they're going to do. And, and, and that's their genius, in, in a sense. And so mm-hmm. as a cinematographer... I try to accommodate them as best I can and uh, allow them to have that space. So it's a more of a general style of lighting. And, you know, we're, we're on dollies. So if they're moving, we can make the corrections. Whereas West, everything is so specific. You, you wouldn't do that. But for them, we're always, if they're moving around, we're, we're moving to correct for them, you know, to, to make sure the shots still look good, you know? So it's a different style. I took it as a challenge. I mean, uh, the only issue with that is that those are all big studio movies. And so it's kind of a lot of cooks, you know, in the kitchen mm-hmm. there. And whereas with Wes, there's only one guy making the decisions and that's him, <laughs> you know. And so that's all you have to worry about. You don't have to worry about some studio guy complaining about something, you know. Uh, that just doesn't happen with Wes. So uh, 
I enjoyed it. I love working with Paul. Paul's a great guy. He's a lot of fun. And the sets are fun. I mean, you know, you got all these comedians on set. I mean, there's a lot of laughing and joking around and, you know. I always wonder about that because like you always hear that the, the cliche is that horror movies are the ones where people are making all, you know, having the most fun and comedies. People get really crazy serious about it. But uh, but I also imagine with improvisers, they're just they got to be goofing off the whole time, like in a good way, like just. Yeah, I can say Paul's films are the sets are always very fun. There's no tension at all. He doesn't like tension and he doesn't want mm-hmm. any tension on the set. And uh, he just, you know, wants everyone to feel comfortable and loose and the actors all come on and they're all comfortable and loose. And so I think everyone kind of, you know, sometimes you have to stop yourself from laughing. Camera starts shaking. Yeah, no, you know, it's, it's something will happen and it's just so crazy and funny, but you just have to control, you know, what you're doing behind the camera sometimes. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a different experience. And after I'd done a couple of those movies and I was getting every comedy script in Hollywood, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, I don't want to be pigeonholed in that. And so that's why I go to do movies like The Squid and the Whale or I do movies like Love and Mercy, for instance. I yeah. Don't know. And, and, uh, so I try to balance it. When, one time it might be Love Mercy, one time it'd be The Squid and the Whale, one time it'd be a big studio movie. But as I get older, I'm kind of gravitating more to the smaller uh, films like Wes's films and Love and Mercy, those types of films, you know. You know, I just want to jump in here. I want to ask a little bit about the 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 evolution of your work uh, over the years with Wes, particularly looking at uh, Rushmore as sort of like, you know, it's a sophomore feature. You got the much larger budget to work with. And I, I assume that then in your collaborations uh, since then, the budget continues to increase and you continue to to work. But that second collaboration, not no longer Bottle Rocket, but now I'm working on something that, you know, famously, I guess there was a shot that was supposed to take place in a helicopter that that Disney said no to in that movie. And uh, it, it's become one of those Bill Murray stories where supposedly Bill Murray said, oh, the studio won't pay for it. Here's a blank check. You know, go ahead and, and get this, get the shot that you need. And of course, I heard that that shot never, never happened, never, never went. But, 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 but as you the story is true. Yeah. Oh, the story is true. OK, so so um, but now I don't think the studios are ever saying, no, I'm sorry, you, you can't have that shot. And he gets to keep, keep going on and you get more tools. And I, I have to imagine just the the level of increase and in change from the production of Bottle Rocket to Rushmore must have been pretty extreme because like in BTS, you see you've got, you know, Dolly, everything and Crane. But I, I know Bottle Rocket was a very, very very low budget. Look at the trajectory just from then till now. How do these uh, steps feel? Do you feel like you keep having to raise the game? Do you feel like you'd actually would go down and do a, a lower budget thing with Wes again? I mean, what's the, the budget and and your sort of role in this whole thing? How, do, how does that fit together? Well, several movies ago, Wes hooked up with Stephen Rails, who is uh, uh, one of his producers. And Stephen, he's kind of the benefactor of all this. And so we don't have to go to a studio. Stephen and Wes figure this all out financially. And the movies are made surprisingly very inexpensively compared because we've cut out the studio. We've cut out a lot of the extraneous things that you pay for. And because Wes is so specific, when you walk into a room, he says, this is where I want to shoot. And you don't have to dress behind me. You don't have to light behind me. He, you know what the shots are. We don't, 99% of the time, we know what the shots are before we even get there. And so 
I think that saves a lot of money in the end. I mean, Wes can be certain extravagant on certain things, you know, props or building something or whatever that, you know, most people, but he doesn't have to argue with anybody over it, you know? And, and uh, again, I don't know what the actors get paid, but I, I assume they don't get paid a lot of money and they're doing it because they want to be here. So financially, Wes is very financially adapter, you know, aware, aware of the finances of things. And he doesn't spend money foolishly, but if there's something he wants and it's expensive, we do it. As far as the gear goes, I mean, we shoot on film and he likes to keep the gear to a minimum, actually. And, uh, you know, we don't use a lot of cranes anymore. And, and that. like as Royal Tenenbaums, we did, you know, but we had one crane shot in our in friend's dispatch. We had brought a techno crane down from uh, Paris and, and Sanjay, the key grip, and I convinced Wes that we needed one. He didn't want it. He hates techno cranes. And, and we, we, you know, we convinced them we went, we needed to do the shot. So they brought the crane down. The first thing up Monday morning, huge shot. Of course, it doesn't work. And he just kind of stood there. <laughs> he kind of stood there and smiled at us like, okay. And uh, like on this present movie I'm doing right now, I've used one light the entire time, you know? And Really? Yeah. I mean, we do things. And, and in the design of our sets, we built the sets with skylights and I just cover it with diffusion and, and that's how we've been lighting it you know and um, can I ask you what that one light is what one light can 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 do all the work that you need it's a 150 LTM pepper <laughs> it was actually a uh, airy uh, LED s60 mm, yeah it's great and uh, it's a little light I, I become big on the LED lights. You know, they're very useful. And, and um, anyway, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. Sooner or later, we're going interiors more. I mean, uh, uh, well, we'll need more lights. But so far, we've been shooting for several weeks. And I, you know, I've used one light the entire time, you know. And, and he doesn't like gear. We keep the, the set very small. He doesn't like a crowd of people around. So... You know, it's Wes, myself, the AD, the focus puller, the boom guy, the dolly grip, and maybe one or two other people, and that's it. Wow. Everybody else, everybody else out of here. And if we need you, we'll call you. And and he uh, he's very much about keeping the area around the actors, not very many people. There's no video village. He's got a little monitor he uses and he sits next to the camera and looks at, I operate the camera. You know, it's very old school and how we do things. I think his dream is to shoot everything like in the old French new wave, you know, how they used to do it with small crews. And he, he does not want an army of people. Whereas you do a big studio movies, there's, you know, 200 people yeah. and four video villages. And, you know, it's a big deal, but we're just the opposite. He, he calls it a student film. <laughs> and that, that's what he likes. And, and, you know, if he, if he arrives and there's too many people there, you have to go to the AD and say, get them all out of here, you know? And wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's how we work. That's interesting to hear. I, I I think the first thing of his I ever saw before the feature of Bottle Rocket was made, my friend Britt Nichols showed me the black and white short of Bottle Rocket. And it, and it was like, I was in film school at the time and I, it was it was kind of like a revelation of like, wait, you can make a movie like that? And when I heard that he'd made a feature out of it, I've been following 
you know, his work closely ever since. And it's interesting to watch his evolution, but it's also interesting how I feel like if I haven't gone back and watched that short in a long time, but I feel like if you go back and watch it, you'll see the the seeds of what he became. And it's interesting to have, to have watched kind of as Ilya was bringing up the maturation of, of his voice also that, you know, combined with your cinematic voice. And I feel like since you're operating the camera, you know, like a lot of those whip pans and a lot of the, a lot of the very specific camera moves that, that are, are kind of signature to him have got to be like part of your sensibility or your sense of humor. A lot of them are played for comedy. And, uh, you know, I, I just think it's, it's amazing to have watched that progression. Yes. And, and as a cinematographer, one thing as you get more experienced and older, you learn it's more what you don't do as much as what you do, you know? Yeah. And, uh, Many times, you know, when you're younger, you kind of freak out a little bit and, and you think you need more lights or you need more of this, but you, sometimes you don't really need all that stuff. And, and, and this movie we're doing now is a perfect example of that. Robert, you mentioned that uh, you didn't want to be pigeonholed and that's why you take certain jobs or not take certain jobs. I don't think there's anyone who can say now that you will be pigeonholed since you have such a diverse and wide number of genres of work. But is there a particular genre uh, that you haven't worked in that you've been wanting to? Is there something that you uh, that you that you'd like to try? Well, I'm a big fan of film noir. I showed uh, Ace in the Hole today. I have a cinema, uh, we're in Spain, and uh, I do a cinema screening every Sunday, and uh, I love film noir. I mean, that's my favorite genre, I think. So mm. if if I were to choose something, I would say film noir. I, hey, I think that's about all the time that we've got, but I know that we could talk for probably another six days about about all this for stuff. Real. So, so uh, hey, I just want to say thank you so much for, for coming on uh, the Cinematography Podcast. All right, so that was uh, Bob Yeoman. That was a lot of fun. I'm so glad that uh, he was on the show. I, I can't wait to do it again. No, he, he was amazing. I can't wait. Uh, and, and I also, I should say, definitely check out The French Dispatch, the new Wes Anderson movie, which Bob shot. I've already seen it. I thought it was really awesome. It's gorgeous. Bob's photography is, you know, he's constantly topping himself. His, his work is just amazing in this movie. I thought it was a brilliant movie. So uh, check it out. And, and I'm jealous because I didn't get to see it. <laughs> yeah, I got to go to a I got to go to a fancy screening room and uh, on a studio lot and sit wearing a mask on my face and be really far away from everybody. It was fun. Good. <laughs> well, well, Ben, you know what time it is now. What time is that? It's a uh, nine forty eight on my clock. That, that that's true. It's also bill paying time, Woot. and uh, we, we got to thank our our lovely show sponsor, uh, Aperture Aperture maker of uh, many fine lighting products. Uh, predominantly, they make some other stuff too, but mostly lights. And we got a little bit of a scoop here. This isn't going to go live till tomorrow, and, it, and the announcement will actually be happening tomorrow at noon. And by the time this goes live, it's probably going to be later in the day. So uh, so we, we're not violating anything here. But at the time of us recording it. Um, this is uh, this, this is a scoop. Very few people in the world know about this new light that is not going to turn a lot of heads only because they don't know how freaking cool it is. It is called the Amaran Cobb 60D. And they're actually announcing a bunch of lights tomorrow. And they're, they're, they're pretty cool. But the 60D in particular is the one that I really want to talk about. Uh, which should not be overlooked. It's not going to be a particularly expensive uh, light. And I'm, I was trying to find the uh, the pricing here, which I, I don't see, but I don't think it's much. I think it's a couple hundred bucks at, at most, but it's a tiny, and I do mean tiny little light with a full-size Bowens mount on it. And, and that doesn't mean 
anything to, to most people out there unless you're, you're really into this. But there's a ton of diffusers and, and reflectors and, and Fresnels and accessories that, that work in Bowen's mount. And most of the time, small little lights don't have access to it, and at least not without some sort of adapter. Also, this light has the uh, Citus Link Bluetooth connection, so you can control a whole network of lights via your phone. And it's ridiculously bright, and it can also be powered by batteries, and it comes with a reflector and some other stuff, but it's a super, super cool little light that performs, uh, I mean, let me tell you, gangbusters amount of light, daylight, compared to, like, other lights that cost way, way more just, you know, a couple of years ago, and truly, you know, having, like... They're, they're big, they've got a competitor who's been out in the market in sort of the space for a little while. And I have to say, they've kind of owned this segment of the market, but they're going to be in trouble now because this light is really cool and it's probably the same size and uh, it's more compatible with certain things. And damn, the Cobb 60D is going to be a light that uh, for a certain segment of the market kind of sets it on fire because um, even though it's not as bright as some other things, you can literally have a, a bag and probably shove half a dozen in them, and uh, you'll be able to check it onto an airplane, or even less. I mean, they, they weigh almost nothing, and their performance is incredible. Wow, that's awesome. I, I, I kind of would just love to get a glimpse into, like, the R&D going on over at Aperture. Like, you know, they just have so many innovative lights coming out on such a regular basis. I, I guess it's inevitable, but like with the rise of LEDs being what they are, that a company would be like, okay, well, let's think about lights in a way that no one's ever thought about them and just start coming brainstorming new configurations that you can make with, uh, you know, high quality LEDs and, and you know, the technology that it, as it exists today. Yeah, we, we already received, uh, I know we have at least one because I, I actually have it in, in the same room as me right now, but um, uh, I'm going to show it to someone and I think there's a whole bunch more that are arriving at, at Hot Ride Cameras in the next uh, days or weeks. And if you have any interest in this light, uh, starting noon tomorrow, there will be all kinds of uh, pictures and videos and things online. And of course, you can buy it from Hot Ride Cameras for whatever the, the going rate is. Uh, it is 11 centimeters by 11 centimeters by 11 centimeters. That is the, the size. It's a little tiny cube and uh it's ridiculously bright so uh very that's cool. cool yeah it, it reminds me really it kind of reminds me of like uh if you ever used old lowell lights like a like oh god yeah yeah in film school we we, we had, used to have those lowell kits yeah it's smaller than a lowell and it's probably it's, it's smaller than an omni probably brighter doesn't get hot and can be battery powered and you can yeah, use I was about it anywhere. To say, it, won't, so. it won't burn your hand like a Lowell light will. No, it won't. You won't leave with second degree burns. So. Man, I had I burned my hand so many times on those kits. And now, short ends. All right, so Ben, it is our famed short end time again. Uh, what is your short end this week? Uh, so my short end, uh, you know, this, this week, the box office was set ablaze by Halloween Kills the nine billionth installment in the Halloween franchise. And even as a giant horror fan, uh, and I, I watched it because it's also on Peacock. By the way, I think it actually bears mentioning, and this is not my short end, but I feel like it bears mentioning how uh, I was bringing up with, for instance, The Suicide Squad, how day and date releasing, in my opinion, hurt its box office. Well, apparently it did not hurt Halloween Kills' box office because Halloween Kills made $50 million, which outgrossed every genre movie, I believe, since the pandemic started. So it made $50 million over the weekend. But my short end is a little teeny tiny horror movie that a lot of people haven't heard of that I, I wish more people would hear of because it's really, really cool. It is called Lamb. L-A-M-B? L-A-M-B. And it's uh, an Icelandic film. 
that stars Numi Rapace, Rapace, mm-hmm. Rapace, stars Numi Rapace from uh, the original Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Mm-hmm. And she's been in a lot of stuff. She's been in a lot of American stuff, but apparently she is a native Icelander or at least was raised uh, speaking Icelandic. And it's directed by somebody named Valdemar Johansson or Johansson. I, I, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. This movie is bonkers. Bonkers in a good way. In a great way. It's the kind of movie that like, I often mock filmmakers who say, I want to make a slow burn horror movie because slow burn often means I can only think of three things instead of five things to happen in a movie. And so I'm going to have a lot of dead air in between. So this movie kind of starts out with a very, shall we say, deliberate pace about a husband and a wife who are childless, who are running a sheep farm in Iceland. And the, the cinematography is gorgeous. And one of their uh, sheeps uh, gives birth to a lamb that, shall we say, has somewhat human characteristics. And so they start raising it as their own child. And it is a slow. Yes. (laughs) And so they basically take it from its mother and they bring it into the house and they put it in a crib and they treat it like it's a person. And it does have. I don't want to spoil anything, but it does have some distinctive human-like qualities. It it's really, really freaking weird, and I and it really stuck with me, and I love it, and it's gorgeous, uh, gorgeous to look at. It's shot by somebody named Eli Aronson. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. And uh, and the cinematography is just it makes me want to move to Iceland immediately. Hmm. It's gorgeous. It looks great. The acting is phenomenal. It is funny in certain ways, like it is aware of how absurd of a concept it is. And the thing I always say about a slow burn movie, and and I can't stress this enough, if you're going to make a slow burn horror movie or any slow burn movie, I sort of feel like the more you make the audience wait for it, the bigger that payoff has to be, or you're just a douche. And the payoff in this was so worth the wait. I can't even begin to tell you. It's an awesome movie. Seek it out. I don't know if it's uh, streaming yet. I saw. It. I actually went to a movie theater and saw it with friends at a movie theater, uh, fully masked and and whatnot. But it is uh, definitely worth the price of admission, and just super weird and brilliant and interesting and strange. So I, I hope a few people check it out. Wow, <laughs> I'll check it out. And it's not even my thing. But your your description yeah, I think you sounds... would like it. I mean. It's not like a gore fest or anything like that. So I, I think, you know, it's if you're into horror movies, but you're not like it's not a movie that's like loaded with cruelty or gore or, you know, torture or anything like that. It's not a slasher. It's more like a dark fantasy, like a Brothers Grimm kind of story, but just told uber realistically in, in the modern time. Like it's not I would almost say it falls into the realm of like folk horror, like the witch. Hmm. Um, but the witch is more of an overtly presenting itself in, in your face as a horror movie. And this is more just kind of like it's interesting and it's odd. And I hope that the director gets some attention for it and gets to make, you know, some bigger, stranger things. That's my hope. So, Ilya, what is your short end this week? Uh, my short end is, you know, I, I feel like a cliche. It's another lens. So uh, or actually, it's a set of lenses. And uh, these are some lenses actually that you can't buy, but you can rent. And there's some really interesting links that that we can put into the show notes so you can go check them out. But Aerie has sort of taken a page out of Panavision's book and what some other companies have done where they have modified existing lenses to create something new. And so they have these uh, very, very high performance anamorphic lenses that came out a few years ago. 
In fact, they were so high performance that it turned off some people because they didn't have necessarily all of the sort of anamorphic characteristics that that perhaps people were, were going for. And what they did is they took those lenses, the master anamorphics, which they had a partnership with Zeiss, they took those lenses, they converted them to full frame optics, kind of, I think, funkied them up a little bit and uh, gave them a new uh, paint job, so to speak. And they're going to be available only from Airy Rental. But uh, the lenses that people were talking about, like how they were so perfect and so, you know, um, uh, pristine, they made them less pristine. And uh, now it's something that that you can only rent. And they have a a little uh, video, which uh, they've shown off, which looks really great. And then they also took some older lenses, some, uh, some Canon FDs and some Olympus Ohm lenses, uh, that were originally made by a company called MovieCam. MovieCam actually got acquired oh. by by Airy many years I ago. I remember MovieCam. Yeah, yeah, MovieCam. They they made some really good good products. And one of the things they had were these these lenses, these very much vintage lenses, these rehouse lenses. Well, they've full framed the ones that may not have been quite full frame, which which I'm not sure exactly what they are. And they gave them new housings and made them you know much more robust. And they posted a cool video of that. And it's like, Aerie is making some lenses, some really serious, legitimate lenses out there that now you can only get from them as a rental provider. And it's interesting because Aerie, you know, their whole business used to be about sales. And, you know, there was tons of rental houses out there. And while they did have, you know, you name it, a couple of rental places here or there, they weren't necessarily about like all about the exclusiveness uh, of certain items. But that's changed. That's changed in a big way. I'd say it's really since the Alexa 65. And now there's there's new lenses that are based around full frame, which means they pair perfectly with the uh, Alexa Mini LF. It wouldn't surprise me if we see these lenses also appearing in their new uh, LPL mount. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's really interesting. I think that people are really going to like them, that the test footage that they showed and the build quality all seem excellent. And it really seems inspired to me. It seems like they're actually responding to the market, which has been very heavy for either vintage lenses or vintage sort of look lenses. And they've come out with some stuff that's unique to them. And uh, we'll, we'll see who, who copies it or does the same thing. It looks uh, it looks really cool. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's that's cool. I'd love to see. I, I need to check out that uh, footage you were talking about that shows what these lenses can do. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. So if you go to camnoir.com and uh, look at this episode, we'll we'll have a link there. You can check it out. Excellent, excellent. Well, I think that that wraps us up. Then, uh, who do we need to thank this week? Let's thank, firstly, Alana Cody, who uh, is making sure that we get all these great interviews like this one today with Bob Yeoman and so many more, so many more. I can't, I can't wait. We've got some pretty kick-ass ones coming up. Uh, let's also thank Ben Katz. Ben Katz, who's, uh, you know, we didn't make his job that easy today, but. Uh, we'll... Oh, man, I'm interested to see how he cuts down our conversation about uh, IATSE. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I think that I, you know, truly we could still be talking about it right now. And uh, yeah, yeah, clearly. <laughs> there's, a lot, uh, yeah. there's a lot to cut down. And thirdly, and never leastly, we should thank uh, Kay's Alec Tracci, who composed all the music that you've heard and uh, probably has lots of his own thoughts about uh, the IATSE strike. Uh, thank you, Kays, for all the wonderful music. We should also mention that uh, if you are a YouTube type of person, the Cinematography Podcast is now on YouTube, and you can find us there and actually watch a little video with some of the stuff and hear these episodes via YouTube. If you if you are into that sort of thing, it is now available to you. Hey, you know where else we are? IMDb. I noticed that recently. Oh, all right. I didn't know that. Cool. Yeah, we don't have all of all of our episodes aren't up there, but some of our episodes are. And I'm like, man, if we get all of our episodes up there, it's going to look like you and I just do nothing but make podcasts all the time. We have been doing this seven years. I mean, it's been years. <laughs> We're not far from 10 years in three years. We'll be at 10 years. I know. Whew. Can you believe it? 
<laughs> we should bring back Jason Wingrove and ask him what he's been up to the last decade. That's a great idea. I'm into that. Uh, all right. So then I think that almost does it. Where can people find you? They want some more Ben Rock time. Please go to benrockonline.com. You can find all my socials. And uh, lots of people have been adding me on uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. And if they uh, they generally say, hey, I'm from the Cinematography Podcast. So I know, like, you know, especially on Facebook, I, I, I'm i cool being friends with people who I don't know in person as long as I know that you're like a real person. But yeah, please please find me there. Check out my reel, uh, that kind of stuff. Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me over at Hot Red Cameras. Hotredcameras.com is the company website, sponsor of this, this show. And you know what? I'm going to plug LinkedIn again. You know, I, I, a lot of people seem to have found me uh, for the podcast through LinkedIn lately. Uh, I think there's a couple of Ilya Friedmans, but I think I'm the first one that comes up and you, you can't miss my smiling face. So <laughs> I, there are more Ben Rocks, by the way. So I, I know of at least two others. Well, uh, well, hit me up. Yes, I, I, I link with with everyone who uh, connects with me who doesn't seem to be like selling me sunglasses or insurance or something like that. So, <laughs> well, that about wraps us up. Uh, we will see you next week. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.